Hey everyone, Keith here. Just a quick heads up as you listen to this conversation I'm about to have with Julie Kaufman. Julie and my relationship is a special one that goes back to my very first case at Bain & Company back in 1996. Julie was the manager on that case and we built a relationship that has extended throughout my entire career. We've worked together multiple times since then, but most importantly, Julie was my performance reviewer throughout my entire career until I got promoted to partner in 2008. I say that to say that we could have easily gone for hours on this episode, but didn't. But more importantly, we talk a lot about Bain's home office model and how apprenticeship and mentorship are critical to your long-term success at Bain and beyond Bain. My relationship with Julie is an example of that. Because we were in the same office, we got to work together on my first case and have worked together multiple times since then, right through to today as we talk about some of the things Julie and I are doing together at Bain. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I think I'm going to enjoy recording it. Joining me today is Julie Kaufman, our Chief Diversity Officer and Head of our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Practice. Julie joins us for part of our ESG series, where we've been profiling some leaders inside Bain, sharing our expertise, and touching on the importance of finding bold new ways to make a positive impact on our clients, in our communities, and inside Bain. In this episode, I'll be talking with Julie about her extensive career at Bain. We'll also be discussing DEI, which is part of the S in ESG. That includes how Bain is supporting our clients through our DEI practice, how Bain is mobilizing its DEI agenda internally, and how we're trying to lead on accountability by publishing our DEI report. Julie, welcome. It's good to have you here today. Thanks, Keith. Great to be here. Julie, now, as we always start with the podcast, I like to start with early days of your career, starting with heading off to school. You went to Wesleyan and majored in mathematics. What was the plan going into Wesleyan for you? Yeah, it's funny to say that. There was definitely not much of a plan. My Dad never went to college. My mom was not, you know, we can, I come from a blue collar family. And so going to Wesleyan was all about figuring out what the next chapter could be. And when I was working on both economics and math at Wesleyan, I had a professor that said, you know, you might really want to think about consulting. And I said, what, what is that? And that's what led me to interview for the internship and try and get a feel for what the job would be about, which led me to become an ACI in the summer of 1987, when Bain was a, was a lot different place than it is today. So you head into the consulting interview. A lot of people listening need to do a ton of case prep because they feel like that's what they have to do to get the job. Did you go down that path when the professor gave you that advice? You know, it's funny. I, I'm not sure we understood what case prep was in the 80s in the same way. But one of the things that the professor said is, you know, just go and, and be yourself and tell your story. What I wish someone had told me was definitely reread your resume, because what I found out later is that I had submitted a resume misspelling the word analytic, because I was trying to talk about being an analytic thinker. If you leave the Y out of analytic, it's an unfortunate spelling. But somehow I made it through the first round without that. My interviewer helpfully pointed that out to me right at the end of the interview, as opposed to the beginning. I was able to fix that for the second round and beyond. But here we are. Overcoming barriers early in the journey. Early in the journey. So Julie, you joined Bain as an ACI. Was it one of those things where you take like a fish to water to the job? I know a lot of people have this vision of a Hollywood movie where you get there and say, wow, I'm among my people. I know that wasn't necessarily the case for me, like from day one, but what was it like for you as you, as you entered into the new arena of consulting? Yeah, no, that, you know, it was definitely, it was definitely not taking like a fish to water. I mean, there were 14 of us. It was the second year being had had ACIs. Actually, there were 16, sorry, 14 guys, two women. What I remember about that summer was feeling like, wow, it's amazing that, that I can work on in a team on solving really interesting problems and get paid. That seems cool. Like, cause the jobs I'd had before were very much 
uh, what I'd call hourly wage, uh, repeat past type jobs before that. But at the same time, I realized that I was among folks that had had much more exposure to, like, I didn't know what a P&L statement was or a balance sheet. We don't have any pre-business classes at Wesley. And I was a classic liberal arts major. I understood numbers, but not how they conveyed in the business parlance. So it was a big, steep learning curve, but I felt like the atmosphere, the types of colleagues that were around me and the way the teams worked, that this could be a place I could really enjoy. Right. And if we fast forward a little bit, you rejoined us full time. So presumably the internship went well by the end of it. You come back full time and you're an associate consultant for a couple of years. And then what did you decide to do with your career after that? Yeah. So we were, you know, the three-year program was still very much something that we believed in. And during that third year, one of the things I was thinking about was what might I want to do beyond consulting? I kind of thought, well, gosh, I've done the consulting thing now. It's ironic to say that as I sit here still doing the consulting thing, but I really thought what I might want to do was either think about something in more like marketing or brand, but at the same time, I had cultivated a real interest in education. I had done some work with City Year, which has been a longtime partner of Baines. I had the opportunity to work with the core, uh, do some other tutoring alongside City Year with some elementary school kids as part of my uh, third year at Bain experience and even worked on a, a pro bono case in that field. And so when I was applying to business school, I was looking at places that I could maybe do a dual degree and think about a public-private partnership and a, a phase in my career at some point that might involve education, which led me to go back to school at Stanford and, and pursue that dual degree, the MBA and the MA and a master's in education. Very cool. Now, you ended up coming back to Bain after Stanford, but you didn't go back to Boston. That's right. So, you know, the summer between years of business school, I pursued that idea of marketing and brand and worked at a consumer packaged goods company and then realized that actually the pace, the learning, the excitement that the consulting side was something I really missed. And at the same time, one of my core uh, mentors, a guy that had actually a partner who had written my recommendations to go to business school was moving to help open our Chicago office. And we were at that moment thinking about planting flags, if you will, in new parts of the country. And I thought, wow, that could be a really interesting way to feel entrepreneurial and do something in a startup idea, but with a culture, a company, an ethos that I understood and liked and felt a part of. And, and they really believed that bringing some folks that had prior being experience into the new office, as opposed to just brand new recruits, would be a nice blend. So I decided to rejoin Bain and help open the Chicago office in the summer of 93. And I think you said of the group that helped open that office, there's a core group still there. I think Adrian King might have been in that group, right? That's right. That's right. So when I, you know, people that I kind of knew that were ACs in Boston had already come back, Adrian King, Kara Groover, also Michael Collins joined with me. So he was in that core group who's now our COO, as you know. And so the four of us, you know, it's sort of funny to think that we're all still here today. Ted Rouse also came over from the San Francisco office and still an advisory partner, really just left being a full-time partner in the last year. So there's a group of us that have stayed with Bain for the long haul that were part of planting that flag and opening that office. Right. And for longtime listeners, you'll remember we had Adrienne King on the podcast as part of our Black History Month series, telling her story and, and transitioning from California to Chicago as well to open up the office. Julie, we can probably skip forward a little bit to you joining the leadership team in Chicago. You know, you came back as a consultant, you were a manager. I think you worked with some amazing ACs as a manager, if I remember correctly. I was say, let's not skip over the part where I had such amazing talent join the firm. I will take 
I take full credit for Keith Bevins, so all you longtime listeners that really enjoy Keith. Uh, I was involved in recruiting Keith, hiring Keith, and I think if the story's right, Keith, I was one of your first managers, right, for your first case. Yeah, so I wasn't quite sure Bain was for me on day one, but I was doing internal work. You were my first client case about a month a month and a half into Bain. And as I as I tell people, wrote all of my performance reviews, good, bad, and ugly, until I got promoted to partner. So thanks for that. Seems to have worked out, Julie. We're doing okay. It seems to have worked out for all of us quite, quite well. But yeah. Yeah, but as you're saying, so Bain was, I mean, we were super busy, super hot in the 90s. You know, part of opening up in Chicago was, was also creating more client opportunities that we were working on furiously. And I was fortunate. I, I was promoted to partner in January of 99. And at the time, I was four months pregnant with my first child. So really thinking through a lot about how the, the Bain career was going to go and how to think about being both a, a working parent at that point in a dual career relationship and making this whole partner thing work. So that was an interesting an interesting transition. Yeah, and so let's talk about the transition to partner because over such a long period of time, it's not a single career in some ways. And I've heard you talk about it as having different chapters. Can you share that with some of the people listening today? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think about that. I'm literally in my 23rd year as a partner at Bain, right? So it's the, by far the dominant part of my career. So like one thing I tell people, you know, it's not as if I had that plan when I was sitting there and as an AC or in business school, but as it unfolds, you realize that playing the the long game and thinking about what it is that you might accomplish over multiple decades is a thing. And so I I often do say that I've had three chapters to my to my partner career. When I look back on it, I, I'm not sure I could have described it that way at the outset, but chapter one was all about figuring it out, like understanding how to try and drive client value, be a working mom, and sort of also create great team experiences and create advocacy and coaching. So chapter one to me was all about figuring it out and and starting to move that flywheel. And the other interesting thing which we can get into is that Bain was just figuring out practice areas at that time as well. So when I got promoted, we didn't have practice areas, but we soon invented them, quote unquote, or adopted them. We didn't invent anything there, I should say, adopted them in a you know, early 2000. And I started to figure out like, what do I want my spike to be? What do I want to be known for? So chapter one was figuring that out. And then we'll get into it. But like chapter two for me was transitioning into being a true client leader and demonstrating the ability to create demand for myself with clients, with internal people, and obviously create demand for Bain. But you have to build your own brand to do that. And then what chapter three, which is more recent, has been about like really kind of leaving my leadership mark and working on what inspires me and where I feel like that can have the most impact uh, inside and outside the firm. So definitely think about it across those those different chapters. Julie, let's unpack chapter one and two for a second. You talked about what do you want to be known for? What do you want your spike to be? I also know that after the first child, there were a couple of more along the way. So presumably uh, you figured that part out. Shout out to Noah, Jenna, and Alana, by the way. What was the spike? What did you choose as your area? Yeah. So First of all, absolutely right on what Keith said. So I had three kids in six years. Bain is incredibly supportive through all of that. And I think for me, the first few years were about how do I balance across the different roles in my life, but at the same time, make sure that I'm really delivering and creating uh, great outcomes for our clients, for our teams, for the work that we were doing. And so at the beginning, I wasn't even searching for a spike. It wasn't even that planned or programmatic. I was just saying, wherever I get plugged in, can I create advocacy and figure out who I'm working with? I enjoy that, both on the internal partner side and externally with clients. And so it ended up that I had an opportunity, you know, in that time frame to work in healthcare. And I really, really liked healthcare. I thought that was a great confluence of, boy, that's working with provider systems in particular. They're trying to help people. They're working on wellness and health and curing disease, et cetera. And at the same time, there's a lot of really interesting 
business challenges there for them to think about how they can grow, better serve the communities, ensure that the economics work out, et cetera. And so that intersection of business and sort of, you know, societal outcomes early in my career spoke to me a lot. And at the same time, I really liked some of the other partners that were already in the healthcare practice. So I think that for me, the quote spike, some people would talk about, oh my gosh, I followed my passion from day one. I always knew I wanted to be in you know, consumer products or in retail or in telecom or whatever it may be. That was not me. For me, it was, I want to be in a situation that I've really found the people, the topics, and the ability to make a difference, both to the individual business, to the individual executives, but to the hopefully the world at large. That was what got me going and, and, and created more inspiration. And so I became more of a member of our healthcare practice at that time and started to try and work in a repeatable fashion on provider system clients on their strategy and organizational issues. Now, I know that you took on some leadership roles along the way as a partner as well. Can you talk a little bit about those? Because at the start, we didn't have practice areas. And you certainly took that as an early adopter and became a leader in, in multiple practice areas, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. First of all, in the Chicago growth, which is also happening at the time, we're growing crazily. You know, I did take uh, early on in chapter one, if you will, one of the ways I was figuring things out was I took a nine month period as an internal role as our HR partner at the time. And that was my first taste of working directly on some people issues internally. And then I also had the opportunity to work as a leader in our recruiting efforts across North America in that same time frame. And so that set the table, if you will, for saying, I do think that being playing a leadership role at Bain, we have a big ethos around servant leadership and that you serve at the pleasure of the partners or the people that you're representing. And so I, I was interested in trying to make sure that, you know, I, I was able to contribute. And so in the healthcare practice, there was a core group of us that were working on providers, a woman named Phyllis Yale, who is the um, biggest uh, mentor, coach, and advocate I've had across my career. And I, I give her kind of a lot of credit for a lot of the success I was able to um, develop inside clients' organizations. But she was my guide. And so I was someone that was trying to follow in her footsteps. And as she was stepping aside to move to advisory partner and, and move on, I took on more of a leadership role in our provider practice in healthcare. And then we can get into it later, but sort of in the middle of that second chapter, what I really figured out was that the another part of the spike could be on a capability side. So not just on a vertical industry, but also on a topic, which for me was organizational effectiveness. So Keith, as you were saying with the multiple chapters, I think for me, I also took advantage of some of Bain's flexibility. So I took a six month leave of absence as I got promoted to senior partner to really reset a bit and figure out a little on what I wanted to focus on and what I wanted to be known for, for the next several years. That's what led me to our organization practice and also my first taste of real client leadership roles. And one of those was being asked to take on leadership responsibility for developing more women leaders at Bain & Company, a group we founded called the Global Women's Leadership Council. And with the real remit of saying our clients are demanding, our people are demanding, our talent requirements are demanding, that we have much more diversity in our leadership team than we do today. And so this was from a gender lens to begin with, but it also set the table for what became a real passion of mine and something I'm working on even now. Yeah, and let's talk about that a little bit more, Julie. Talk about what the GWLC is. We had Jen Hayes on a while ago, who I think is who you passed the baton off to. But when that role stood up inside Bain, I believe you were the first one blazing the trail for it and defining what it should be and could be. Yeah, I mean, it was. We didn't have, we've always had affinity groups for our different underrepresented populations. And they were much more of what I'd call 
places that you cultivated a network and a sense of belonging and a sense of building community. What we hadn't done was take a more strategic top-down view that said, we have got to make progress on developing and retaining this group of people and changing the complexion of our leadership team. And that's what the GWLC was founded to do. And yet we had never had anything like that before. So we had to sort of make up all the rules. And what we ended up evolving to from a governance perspective was saying, this needs to be owned by the line. So our regional managing partners in each of our three regions need to have true skin in the game and ownership of the outcomes. And we had to have the right data set so people would understand where are the hotspots, where are we thriving and where might we be losing people or where are the places that we have to intervene. And we developed some programming around sponsorship and on ensuring that our, at that time, predominantly male leadership team realized it was their job to more proactively coach, develop and mentor senior women that were on their teams and help them build the confidence and the access to the more senior roles in the firm. And we found great success in bringing the opportunity forward and then creating the programming and the sort of mindset shifts needed to help people understand this is a core part of what we need to do to break some tendencies and unconscious biases that existed around who you choose to mentor or who you might naturally go spend time with. Even if it wasn't intentional to exclude, we realized that without shining a brighter light, it was going to keep perpetuating. And so there was an opportunity there to sort of, I thought of myself as sort of the chief female officer of the firm, right? I was trying to represent all of our women, but also knew that you couldn't make it happen from some centralized group that was divorced from our leaders in the offices, in the practices. And so really it was about surfacing the opportunity, providing the information, and then acting more like a center of excellence with some playbooks and ideas on what could work. But then also keeping a share of voice at the most senior levels of the firm on the needs and the progress of this population, um, which I think really set the table for some things we're doing uh, today across a broader set of populations in our diversity and equity inclusion efforts. Just because we could all preach it at the top of the house, quote unquote, or focus on it in certain meetings or publications, unless every single person that was managing individuals, so case team is one, functional team, conference room, like any way in which you have a group of individuals, you have to role model and demonstrate your advocacy, create an inclusive environment, and be proactive in cultivating all of the folks on your team to help them contribute at the top of their capability set. And recognize that not everybody walks in with an equal playing field in terms of a sense of belonging, a sense of trust in the institution, a willingness to take risks and be outspoken. Like We all have different mindsets, styles, and entering Uh, perspectives and has to be taken into account to try and make all of us more effective in the settings we have at Bain. Julian, so you've been a leader on that part of Bain's growth and evolution since 2009, I think is when we initially launched that. But the world changed for a lot of us in 2020. And that led to a major shift, I think, in Bain's focus and intent and intention around DEI. Can you talk a little bit about how 2020 changed you and and maybe gave you a different perspective on things? For sure. I mean, 2020 was incredibly difficult for everybody. And I think incredibly personalized how things hit you. And of course, I'm not talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about the murder of George Floyd, the other racial hatred incidents, both in the US and frankly, other places in the globe. And what I remember so poignantly, if you will, is that my kids were home because of the pandemic. So I had two that should have been in college and they both came home. And when there were the protests happening and the different things going on around the community, 
being able to see it through my kids' eyes, talk about it at the dinner table, see the just the complete disgust, quite honestly, that they had for the establishment, if you will, or the leadership of the various institutions we have in this country. And at the same time, for me to recognize that while I would have thought that I had an awareness of what was going on in our country and there was awareness of some of the racist institutions and the systemic racism. So I thought, frankly, I had been really walking around ignorant of what was happening, both inside our four walls, in the society, et cetera. And I, I, um, it, it hit me very, very deeply about how could I have been so blind? How, how could I live in this place where these things are allowed to happen and, and not have had more awareness every single day? Whereas my colleagues and good friends that are black or Latinx or Asian and live with this stuff every day and not to fully realize until we kind of unpacked more and told more stories and just asked more questions. And so when Bain came out, you know, so the murder of George Floyd happened 10 days later, Bain came out with seven commitments that we were going to make a difference that we were going to you know, change our approach to what we were doing on racial equity and social justice inside our social impact practice, but also inside Bain. And they also wanted to try and support our clients that would also be having this reckoning about what do we as corporations do to try and right some of these wrongs. And I very quickly you know, sent off a note to a couple of our firm leaders to say, I, I want in. How can I help? I, I'd love to. And you may have already named all the leaders you need, but just know I'm here. And after um, some dialogues with Manny and Russ and Ivan, some of three of the leaders around the Americas and our global firm, you know, I was asked, could you take on the leadership of a starting a new practice, a diversity, equity, inclusion practice that is not meant to necessarily be a huge revenue generator, but is meant to be a first port of call for our clients that are grappling with what to do? Because we are a talent-driven firm. We have been thinking about these issues and we should have something to say. We needed to think about the right partnerships and the right learnings for all of us to support clients. And would I be willing to take on a leadership role in taking a hard look in the mirror? We called it our North American Transformation Office working alongside two of our more senior black leaders to say, how are we treating our blacks at Bain colleagues? And what is our own sense of the lived experience for BABS is a, the acronym we use in, inside our four walls. And what can we do differently to ensure that we're having uh, the best experience and, the, and, and accessing the best talent and helping them grow, develop to the top of their capabilities. And, and so I totally pivoted what I was doing basically in July uh, of 2020 to be 100% focused on DEI, sort of half internal, half external. And Julie, why don't we take them in that order and start with the external piece where you started as a founder, founding member, founder of the DEI practice, of which I'm also a part of. What type of traction are we getting with clients and what have we been learning as we roll out that practice? One of the things that we learned early on was that our clients were really looking for thought partners and an opportunity to access ideas. And so there were a few things that were happening simultaneously. I don't know if on any of your prior broadcasts, you might have talked about 110, Keith, but so at the same time as this, we were involved in standing up a coalition of Fortune 500 companies. It's now up to about 65 member companies that were pledging to hire a million Black Americans over the next 10 years into family-sustaining wage jobs that do not require a four-year college degree, with a recognition that 80% plus of Black Americans don't have a four-year college degree. And we've been using that credential in an, in an unnecessary way for many, many jobs that are needed in the society. So by being, being involved through our social impact work in standing that up, we also recognize from all of those corporations 
that they were looking for a way to think about what are the practices we need to do to make that happen, both in our talent acquisition and also in our talent retention. And we had an opportunity to think about our own learnings around recruitment that you've led over time, Keith, about stripping out unconscious biases and coming up with processes that were enabling and inviting to more populations. And also thinking about everything from rewriting job specs and all of that. But we weren't trying to, quote, sell that. We just wanted to be a place that we could collect that knowledge and that community of practice that was emerging from the 110 companies became another resource for us to connect people and learn from. So that was one element. Secondly, we were getting a lot of inbound calls from a number of our top clients that had been working with Bain for multiple years on strategy or operations or other topics, but just basically asking the question of saying, we saw your commitments. What are you doing? What are you seeing? What should we be thinking about? And so we we started this idea of having, quote, relationship dialogues, the idea of putting a deposit in the balance sheet of those accounts of those clients to just talk to us about what are we seeing? What's the research that we're kicking off? What are our internal learnings? What is the person, you know, Julie, can you come talk to our CHRO, our CEO, the head of this business unit to just share ideas and create channels of communication? And and so what we really wanted to do is be responsive to those clients that we had a deep advisor relationship and realize that we could even deepen the trust and the strategic perspectives by sharing ideas here. And then the third thing that you're hearing is that what our clients really wanted were some tools and some opportunities to try and improve on their own. And so one of the other things we did was we were seeking a lot of partnerships to build out these tools. One of them was Grads of Life, which is a part of Year Up, also part of helping to start up 110 and a core co-creator of the 110 experience with us. And together we've developed something we call the DEI Opportunity Identifier. It's an online tool that enables talent leaders at corporations to understand where they have put in place tactics and practices that are demonstrated to drive outcomes because they've got a bunch of research in place about what works and what doesn't around the entire inclusive talent journey, but also in terms of wages and benefits, also in terms of supply chain spend, strategy, governance. And so this tool is a great way as a checklist for our clients to get a sense of where are we early stage, where maybe can we access some different um, practices, or where are we more leading and developing and, and we should be looking to help others. And so we've been trying to build those kinds of tools to both allow our clients to self-diagnose or in the right opportunities to work with us on those diagnostics and, and strategies to, to move forward. Yeah, I think what's also been interesting is that I've seen it go across our entire client portfolio, so to speak. It's not just the sort of major Fortune 1000 companies, but I see smaller companies, especially through our private equity practice, sort of taking an interest in this, right? Yeah, great point. And I'd say, first of all, it's global. So while we've had a lot of interest in the U.S., quite honestly, I've had a lot of interest in our EMEA-based clients. They might be more focused on gender and sexual orientation than race in certain countries. And in certain countries, they can't even collect some of that data based on different privacy laws. But all of them recognize the need to try and create more inclusive environments for different types of talent to come together and be productive. And same in in Asia Pacific. And then to your point about company size, a thousand percent correct. This is not a big company only issue. And in fact, I think we've had even more impact to create, you know, ways in which even our smaller clients are able to at least start the dialogue on what does our leadership team stand for? And do we even understand the lived experience of our workers? And how do we want to think about building bridges and opportunities so that that lived experience is more equivalent across different communities, right? If we start to see that women are having a different experience than men or folks that are Asian American are having a different experience than white Americans, what do we want to do differently to enhance that sense of belonging, that sense of trust, and that sense of knowledge of each other and inclusion? And, 
you know, helping all of our leaders learn more and take varied perspectives on building a great team that can do great work together. Julian, this is a great point to transition on because I want to talk a little bit about the work you're doing inside Bain as our chief diversity officer. You mentioned 110 earlier. We didn't just help stand up 110. We're also one of the companies that's a member of 110. I remember getting a call from the 110 team asking me about the job descriptions I was posting online and whether or not to be a junior member of our recruiting team, you actually needed a four-year college degree. I said, you know what? Actually, you don't. If you have the skills, you have the skills and that's enough. And that was one of the aha moments where I was like, oh, maybe I'm part of the problem here. Unintentionally, just you rinse and repeat the job specs. You rarely read the job criteria at the bottom. You just sort of cut and paste. And you go, oh, wait a minute. That actually discourages a bunch of people from applying. And that's one micro example of all of the sort of light bulb moments we've had as a firm over the last couple of years. Why don't we shift and talk a little bit about, you know, you started to mention the transformation office that we launched in 2020, some of the work and the journey that we've been on inside Bain. So what we really came together and decided is that we wanted to drive diversity, you know, drive real results around diversity, equity, inclusion through three lenses for our people, for our business and in the community. Talked a little bit about the practice, which is a main part of how we're thinking about it as a business, but we've also invested in our own supply chain knowledge and joined some associations been looking to diversify our spend. And so under that business column, there are things about how we run Bain as well as how we serve our clients. Under that community column, 110 is a big part of it, but we're doing other things for other advocacy groups and social organizations to work on improving conditions across multiple geographies. On the for our people side, one of the things we needed to really say is as an employer, are we living up to our own expectations of being a place that belonging, support, and trust fuel all of us every day. And that no matter where you join Bain from and what your background, that you're able to have an experience where you can be contributing at the top of your capabilities, see growth and see potential. Because at the end of the day, we need every single talented human that we can find to contribute across all of our capabilities and things we wanted. So you mentioned things around your team. I mean, it's true everywhere. We've been growing tremendously in our technology groups or advanced analytics groups. And there's many ways people get those skills that doesn't have to be for example, through a four-year degree. But what we've been working on as a firm is to say, okay, we want to make sure that every aspect of that talent journey is really equitable and that we've thought about the things we are doing intentionally or unintentionally that put bias in the way, or perhaps we just don't have enough uh, line of sight into the ripple effects of making those choices. And so a lot of this has been about raising the awareness across our leadership team about practices that may have existed for decades that unintentionally have systematized certain things that are creating unequal, you know, access to things. So we've thought about everything from recruitment around broadening our talent sources that Keith talked about. We've talked about our ways of interviewing. We've talked importantly about onboarding and what we want that first year to look and feel like for new Bainies, right? We don't want to rush. We spend thousands of hours, millions of dollars recruiting this amazing talent. And then within three to four months, we're racking and stacking and starting to give out grades. Why, why are we doing that? Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense as opposed to give people that opportunity to acclimate to our environment, to the different requirements of the different jobs, coach and develop, fill the tank of a sense of belonging and trust in the organization. And then, yes, give real, specific, concrete feedback from day one. So I'm not talking about coaching and developing without providing constructive opportunities for improvement. What I am saying, though, is don't start labeling people or slapping grades on people before they've had a chance to fully understand what the job entails and requires and how they can best unlock the talent they have inside to contribute that. 
And we have to shift our mindset as managers to thinking about my job is to help every single one of these flowers bloom to the best of their ability and to think about ways I can provide as much real direction and feedback to help that happen. And then as we get into the performance review processes and promotion processes, mitigating biases that we all have. Bias is not a bad thing. All humans have bias. Bias mitigation, though, is what we should strive for and improving our awareness of what does it really look like to have a place where people are evaluated on the outcomes they create, not in the manner in which they get created. And that's what we've been working on. And I have really been energized to see the amount of acceptance, excitement, and desire across our leadership team to improve on these dimensions. Julie, one of the things that I learned working with the team was this whole notion of a curb cut. And a lot of the things that you talked about, I want to be clear, they might have spawned out of our DEI agenda, but they're not really DEI things. And I remember I remember sort of going, that's a really good idea. Why aren't we doing that for everyone? And I think we learned that with the women's program, thinking about sponsorship you know, a decade ago. Right. But maybe you can explain the curb cut metaphor for people listening today, because for me, that was another one of those light bulb moments in the last 18 months or so. What the curb cut metaphor, if you will, is all about is saying, if you think about who is the most marginalized group or the most impacted group, and you design explicitly for that group an intervention that's going to make life better for them. So the example here is folks that are fine to a wheelchair to get around. How do we make it easier for those folks to be able to navigate our streets? And people said, ah, well, you know what we should do? We should have ramps in the sidewalks because then it'll be a heck of a lot easier for those folks to be able to traverse our neighborhoods. And so the reality is cutting into the curb really benefited folks that are in wheelchairs. Guess who else it benefited? It benefited bicyclists. It benefited older folks that might be using canes. It benefited parents with strollers. So there's a whole other group of populations that ended up having a better quality of life, if you will, because we cut out that portion of the curb. And so we use that metaphor to say we can design for the most marginalized community in our organization or a group that we feel like has the biggest gap in their own sense of inclusion, let's say. But the reality is like whatever intervention we design, it almost for sure is going to help a whole other swath of people, right? So no, who doesn't like more positive feedback in terms of being real gratitude and appreciation for their work and recognizing that we should say thank you more explicitly and do more shout outs publicly to celebrate accomplishments, not just rush to the constructive criticism part of feedback. Doesn't mean you should avoid that second part, but we should spend more time on the first. Well, you know what? I don't know a single human that isn't going to feel better about getting patted on the back a bit more, getting recognized for their hard work and their dedication. And so we've really, and in fact, in the most recent research that we just published called The Fabric of Belonging, and it's on our website about how to create an inclusive organization, we tested a number of enablers and we're amazed to see the uplift that you could have across many different intersectional identities. And that gave us confidence that thinking about these things that can uplift many groups will be a way that we can move forward without thinking that we have to have 12 different customized agendas. A lot of things are going to help a number of different groups, and we can learn from those and develop even better interventions going forward. Julie, one other thing that I wanted to make sure we touch on today was Bain's DEI report, which we did for the first time relatively recently, although I've been here a long time and have, have as a leader in Blacks at Bain, have seen a lot of the data. But this is really the first time that we published it in entirety and talked about our vision, where we are, where we want to go. Can you talk a little bit about that report and why it was so important for us to put out there publicly? Absolutely. The DEI report was first released in June of 
2021, and we'll have the next installment. It's going to be an annual report. It'll come out in, in June or July of this year. It was a really important to us because when we studied leaders who are leading on this topic of diversity, equity, inclusion across corporations, and nobody's, quote, solved it, but there are many firms that have been out on this path and leaders in their endeavors. And what we noticed was the best leaders in this place are incredibly transparent and public about both where they sit today on representation outcomes, on sentiment outcomes occasionally, and any other outcome that they're tracking. And they're also very public about their commitment to growing and progressing from that baseline. And so we realized that if we were going to be taken seriously as being a real leader in this space and be role model for our clients, as well as for other partners that we're a part of, we needed to do the same. And even though we were publishing that data for internal leadership audiences, we said we have got to publish publicly so that everybody can see that we understand where we stand in terms of our mix of talent across the entire workforce in the U.S. by different racial ethnic and gender groups, as well as sexual orientation. And then globally as well, again, respecting privacy laws in different countries, the degree of specificity will vary by country. But we were committed to saying we are going to talk about our workforce composition, our leadership team composition, our new hire composition, and our aspirations over the next several years for the growth in those areas. And this year, we'll also be publishing a little bit more about our explicit goals on lived experience and sentiment that we've talked about already. And also shine a light on some of the programs, interventions, and innovations we've been bringing to the table to try and keep getting better. And as importantly as anything in there is having a spotlight on the stories of our people, of all different backgrounds, of their own different journeys, on how they have found their path at Bain, and how they have contributed to us continuing to getting better as a firm and being a place where belonging, support, and trust can fuel all Bainies every day. And I think a big part of that for me was there's nothing to be worried about in sharing the data and the aspirations if you're making good faith, wholehearted, real efforts to pursue those goals. And so I think we're putting it out there specifically because we want the public to hold us accountable for doing what we say. That's exactly right. And I want, you know, recruits, I want employees, I want partners, I want all of our clients to be able to see that, understand that. I know that's a really deeply embedded in the fabric of who we are. So, Julie, thank you. It's been really great to get insights into what Bain is doing around DEI, not only for our clients, but Bain internally in our communities. What's next for Bain on the DEI journey and what's on your agenda for the next several years? 21 was all about solidifying our ambition, our aspirations, setting some goals and putting some stakes in the ground about our point of departure and where we hope to be in several years. Where we are right now in 22 is what I'm calling the test and learn phase. Design, try it, see what works, course correct. So we're using agile methodologies, if you will, to really try out different things in our different geographies around the world and our different practices about the right programmatic interventions, the right supports, the right trainings, the right experiences that we can embed in being a Bainey to try and help us reach those goals. And so 22 is going to be really figuring out how we get all the right things in place. So my hope is that into 23, we're really accelerating forward and starting to see demonstrable progress and also kind of raising the bar, if you will, about what's, what's the next frontier going to be about. DEI, as you know, Keith, is it's a journey with no finish line. There is no time that you ever declare victory. We're not going to be done. But what we need to be able to do is set goals, make progress, see what works and didn't, and then figure out how we turn up the volume even more to hit our next goals, the harder to reach things, and to ensure that all Bainies are really embedded with a sense of belonging and being able to make a difference around the inclusion, the support, 
and what it means to be a Bain person. Like, I just think this is central. You said it well yourself. This is not really a DEI agenda. To me, this is an employee value proposition agenda. This is who we are, consistent with our mission statement. And we need to all live it every day and have it embedded in all the things we do for our teams, for our clients, and in our communities. And Julie, not to put you on the spot asking for advice, but we have people listening that are about to start their next job, start maybe their first job. We also have people who are well into their careers. What advice would you give them for making an impact or positive change on the DEI agenda for their workplace or the organization that they're a part of? Yeah, look, I think everybody has their own desires or non-desires to like raise their hand to be a quote leader on the topic. But what we can all do regardless of whether or not you want to have an official post, is recognize that this agenda is carried forward by individuals. And so all of us, in the way that we show up in the workplace every day, are we doing more to create a more inclusive environment? Are we being curious? Are we asking questions to get to know our teammates? Are we being aware of different styles around us and thinking about what good could look like different than just the way you do it? And are you role modeling? What does it mean to be that inclusive teammate that's there to support each other to listen and to ensure that in your team room, everybody is comfortable contributing, maybe taking some risks, trying to break some glass and innovate because that's what it takes to have great solutions, great outcomes in your workplace. So at the minimum, I would advise everybody just think about themselves. And if I show up as an inclusive teammate, inclusive leader, and am I an upstander as opposed to a bystander if I see things happening that maybe aren't consistent with what I believe is the right things to do and figuring out ways that you can you know, take some action, support your colleagues, be an active ally, be an active participant in what's happening in your place. Julie, that's really well said and a great place for us to stop this conversation. I say in the intro to this episode that we probably could have talked for hours. We didn't, but hopefully we'll have you back on. And I do want to thank you for your time today and thank you for your mentorship and leadership over my entire career and the career of many others at Bain. So thank you. It's absolutely my pleasure. I will come back anytime. And thank you, Keith, for doing these amazing podcasts.